Welcome to the first edition of Which Decade is Tops or Pops? My name is Mike Atkinson and I'll be joined for this episode and for every episode by my friends Nick Parkhouse and, to use his professional name, DJ Trev. (laughs) I should explain the concept of the show as briefly as I can. Uh, So every episode we're going to be looking at six hit singles that were in the same position in the UK top ten exactly ten years apart. We're going to be talking about them, and then you get to vote for them. And I'll give you details of the voting procedure at the end of the show. Uh, What will happen is that points will be awarded to each decade based on the uh, final results for each episode, and these points will accrue. The basic idea being that as the series progresses, it will become clear by means of the system known as democracy, because when has democracy ever failed us, which decade truly is tops or pops. It could be anything from the 1960s to the 2010s. We're not doing the 1950s because there's not a full decade and we're not doing the 2020s because also there's not a full decade. Six decades will suffice. Now let me introduce you to Nick and Trev properly and perhaps you could um, explain to the listeners why (laughs) you have a right to be here pontificating about pop music. Establish your pop credentials. I'll start with you Nick. Hello, Mike. So I once had a cigarette backstage at the Nottingham Arena with Ben Volpier Piero out of curiosity killed the cat. There you are. Is that credentials enough? What further qualification do you need? Well, I know exactly. So no, I am a... (laughs) That was um... a name drop. (laughs) It was quite a niche name drop. Well, let's face it. We're all going to be trying to squeeze in name drops, aren't we? Um, so yes, so uh, that was all part of a project where I wrote a book about 80s pop music and I've presented an afternoon radio show and done loads of kind of music reviews, interviews, that sort of thing. So yeah, from the age of 12 when I got my first edition of Smash Hits, that has been my thing. You have a right to be here, as do you, Trev. Why do you have a right to be here? Well, I'm not entirely sure that I do, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. I guess anybody that knows me as a DJ, and there are at least three people who know me as a DJ, would be expecting me to name drop one of three names that I always drop. So I'm going to go outside of the uh, three bankers, because you'll get to hear about those anecdotes pretty much every episode anyway. I have DJed in my time supporting Napalm Death and Adiva. Which I think musically is a pretty broad spectrum. I'm a full-time DJ. It's what I do. And yeah, when I was thinking about it, they're pretty wide goalposts. We won't be touching upon Napalm Death in this series, sadly, because Napalm Death must have several top 10 singles, surely. Diva had, well, Diva had three consecutive number 17 singles. (laughs) It's it's like, you just know that. Mm. This is why I wanted you on board. The instant recall of trivia like that, this, this is what's going to make our series great. You didn't know about me uh, DJing with a diva as well. That's just something you know. You've not gone, uh, there's a chance Trev might mention a diva. That's just an obscure thing, you know, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, my own pop credentials. Basically, this series is a revival of a series I used to hold every year on my blog in the 2000s. The name of the blog was Troubled Diva and... Every February, to coincide with my birthday, 
I would do a whole run of which decade this tots or pops. I did this from 2003 to 2009, and it was the most popular thing I ever did on the blog. And people used to say they looked forward all year until it came around again. But uh, now it'll be coming, well, hopefully every fortnight or so. The blog got me noticed by a couple of newspaper editors and that led me into music journalism. I was a freelance music journalist for about eight years. I've reviewed a lot of shows and I've spoken to a lot of pop stars, but almost always down the phone and almost never in person. It was a regional newspaper. We didn't get that sort of access. Meeting Curious to Kill the Cat in person, Mike, I wouldn't say added anything to the experience of interviewing them over the phone. I, well, I, what I'm interested in, you're saying, I, you know, I only met them down the phone. Yeah. At least they were solicited phone calls. I mean, I spoke to loads of pop stars down the phone, but none of them wanted me to be ringing them. And they were mainly like asking me to stop ringing them. And in certain cases, taking out court orders to prevent that from ever happening again. Well, most of my interviewees were able to feign pleasure at my call, apart from the jazz funk musician Roy Ayers, who I think was the last person I ever interviewed. He was not pleased that I called him, but everyone else, it worked okay. I think the only two I ever interviewed in person were Beverly Knight and the two members of the gossip that weren't Beth Ditto. She took one look at me and said, no, I'm checking my emails. I have to do it with the other two. To be fair, like you say, people feigning uh, pleasure. In the early days of my DJing career, particularly when I was single, I had a lot of people feigning pleasure with me. Um, So, you know, we've got quite a lot in common. (laughs) Let's move on. Let's get started. Oh, no, before we get started, um, I will just give you a little bit more info. The first thing you need to know is this is a talk-only podcast. There'll be no copyrighted music on here for the obvious reasons. But there are multiple ways of listening to the tunes that we will be discussing. The easiest way is to look at our Twitter feed or our Facebook page where you will find YouTubes to all six tracks. So if you're on Twitter, we're at Which Decade Tops. If you're on Facebook, just search for Which Decade is Tops or Pops and you'll find the page. There's also a YouTube playlist and a Spotify playlist. Uh, To access the YouTube playlist, go to tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade001. If you want the Spotify playlist, just add an S for Spotify to the end of that. So it's tinyurl.com forward slash whichdecade001S. So we've got six tunes for you that have been basically randomly selected. I don't want anyone to think that we are cherry picking our selections in order to give weight to our personal favorite decades. What we do is we use a random number generator to generate two numbers. The first one is a year suffix between zero and nine. The second one is a chart position from one to 10. And our randomizer gave us a year suffix of three and a chart position of eight. So using the day on which this podcast is being recorded, the 2nd of November, we will therefore be looking at songs that were number eight in the charts on the 2nd of November from 1963 through to 2013. I can tell you three of the acts are British, two are from the USA, one is Australian. One of them is a massive international superstar, two of them enjoyed prolonged and healthy chart careers. Two acts came and went fairly quickly. One act is a one-hit wonder. So a good representation there. So let's start with our song from... The 60s! Sugar and Spice from The Searchers. 
This was the second of six top 10 hits between 1963 and 1965 for the searchers, including three number ones. This one peaked at number two. It was held off the top slot by Jerry and the Pacemakers with, with You'll Never Walk Alone, another Liverpool group. Uh, the searchers were very much part of the Mersey Beat boom of that year. The first hit had been a cover of The Drifters, Sweets for a Sweet. That got to number one. This Sugar and Spice was the follow-up. It was written by their regular producer, Tony Hatch, the guy who wrote the uh, theme tune to Crossroads, Neighbours, and Mr. and Mrs. I think he was aware that the band may not take kindly to recording a Tony Hatch song, so he he fooled them. Um, He presented the song to the band, saying it was the work of an unknown songwriter called Fred Nightingale, and thus they were suckered into recording his song. Nick. Your thoughts on Sugar and Spice? Well, the first thing I had to do here was to establish that the searchers were not the seekers, because in my head, they felt like the same thing. But it turns out that they're by no means the same thing. I mean, they, they you say they were a Mersey Beat thing, but actually they took a similar route to the Beatles in the sense that, you know, they started in the late 50s. They went to Hamburg. They did a 128-day residency in Hamburg in the early 60s. But unlike the Beatles, I think most of their stuff was covers. It was written by not the band, as far as I could tell. It's hard to know what to say about this song, other than it sounds like every single other pop record made between about 1961 and 1964, as far as I could tell. It's got the same jangly guitar, It's got the same sort of nursery rhyme-esque lyrics, you know, rhyming fine and wine and that sort of thing. It's fine, I think. I mean, they did like this way of naming their songs, The Searchers, didn't they? Because they had Sugar and Spice and then they had Needles and Pins. Yeah, basically, they they had Sweet Summer Sweet and Sugar and Spice. And then they promptly moved from the confectionery counter to the haberdashery counter and decided to tackle needles and pins. And then later on, they had spicks and specks. So they obviously thought that this particular route worked for them. What I liked most when I was looking into this and listening to some searchers music the other day was it, it really doesn't happen so much these days that one of the original members of the searchers, I think he was the drummer, had to quit in 1960 because he worked at a bakery and they put him on the night shift. Uh, And so his career in the searches was sadly cut short because he had to work the night shift at the bakery. And I don't think that happens anymore, does it? The Pete Best of the searchers, only Pete Best was pushed rather than jumped. Well, he didn't have to do a night shift at the bakery, did he, Pete Best, as far as we know. So, yes, of the Tony Hatch creations, I would say I prefer his work with Petula Clark. I like Downtown and Don't Sleep in the Subway more than I like this. I mean, in fairness, I like the Crossroads theme tune better than this, but it's fine. It's sort of forgettable early 60s pop music, isn't it? Fair enough. Trev, what do you think of Sugar and Spice? Yeah, echoing a lot of what Nick says, it's it's a nice enough 60s song. I just think lyrically it's aged so badly and I don't think it's the fault of the song I just sort of think the modern day vernacular just sounds of a weird creepy vibe to it you know all I could hear was sugar and spice sweets and then little girl and it just ruined the song for me I, I'm just it's, it's not a song I was aware of and I couldn't get past that because it is a nice enough tune I heard it and initially I was like oh, I think I'm gonna like this because I like the Beatles it is a very 60 sounding tune but then I just kept, couldn't get 
beyond that, you know, I don't think you wouldn't get a song written like this these days. And I don't think it's the song's fault. Pretty sure it's a harmless song, but there you go. It just gave me, ooh, my toes were curling uh, throughout. Understand that. Little Girl was a, a common term of endearment in pop songs of the day. It was a drifter's hit. Can I take you home, little girl? Uh, Ringo Starr, you're 16, you're sweet in your mind. There's so many of them. I don't, I don't think we're sinister at the time, but it just does, just hasn't aged well. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a great deal of songs. Uh, you know, we're going to find out over the coming uh, weeks, aren't we? But, you know, there's going to be loads of songs that you just go, oh, say that, just say that lyric back rather than sing it. Yeah, not for me. We are going to be rubbing up against cancel culture on multiple occasions going forward i think yeah and you say they don't write songs this anymore but when we get to the 2000s one writing slightly creepy songs about women does reappear so <laughs> oh the um yeah some of the ones that we're going to get in the noughties and you know it's say for example if it was with creepy intent you know at least they had the decency to sort of veil it whereas you know you, we're going to get some stuff where it's just open well we could name loads let's not bother uh, i don't want to think about any of those horrible songs <laughs> sure we'll get to them in time it, uh, nick it's interesting that you had the searchers and the seekers somewhat confused i was having dinner just before the recording of this show, and I was playing the songs through uh, for my partner, Kevin, to listen to. I was playing The Searchers, and he said, oh, I didn't think they were a Mersey Beat band. I went, yeah, totally. The Searchers were absolutely a Mersey Beat band. Are you splitting hairs here? And then he realised he was also thinking of The Seekers. So it's an easy mistake to make. What I find interesting about this particular moment in pop is that we are seeing a very sudden rise to prominence of the pop group as one of the key units of currency in the charts. If you look at the top 40 exactly a year before this, 2nd November 1962, you've only got four groups in the whole top 40. You've got the Tornadoes and the Shadows, but they are both instrumental groups. You've got the Four Seasons, a US group, and just entering the top 40 for the first time exactly a year before this, you've got the Beatles with Love Me Do. And Of course, it was the massive instant success of the Beatles in 1963, which made the pop group a viable concern. Now, you look at this chart, 2nd November 1963, you've got 10 groups in the top 40. Exactly half of them are from Liverpool. Merseybeat really was huge at this moment. You go forward a year to 1964, there are 16 groups in the top 40. You look at the current top 40 from 2022, How many groups are in that, you might wonder? Two. One Republic and the Arctic Monkeys. There's an arc you can trace. The rise and fall of the group, or as we now call them, the band. What's most interesting about that is the turnover, you know, for the entire sort of pop music machine to, you know, in a year change that quickly it's the type of thing that i kind of think would be a more recent thing you know i remember when um when indie came back in fashion in the uh noughties with the killers you know suddenly out of nowhere there were all these bands thinking oh well you know that's because there's a big scene but then as you say you know most of them came from liverpool or a lot of them came from liverpool that had the scene so they just all presumably record executives jumped in the car up to liverpool who can we sign but still pretty impressive turnover they know what they're doing how to make a few quid don't they i think the 60s were a period of very rapid, continuous change. Um, Maybe it's just my age, but it seems to me that the rate of that change has slowed down in more recent years. And it's it's harder. If you listen to a song from the 60s that you haven't heard before, you can often pin it to the ear without even knowing it. And I don't really feel you can do that now. 
Uh, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I think if you went to the album chart today, you'd find a lot of groups. I think yeah. it's partly the way the charts work, that the way that streaming has taken over and stuff means that there are still an awful lot of bands, but they're not in the singles chart. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a bit more these days, you get a bit more of a rise of artists who sound like bands again. Um, Sam Fender's one. You know, that 10 years ago, Sam Fender would have been a band and he'd have been the lead singer, whereas now it's... Yeah, the lead singer and Joe Session musician, I presume, or, you know, a rotating band or whatever. The Fender Tones, they could have been known as. The Fender Benders. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I kind of agree with both of your kind of lukewarm assessment of Sugar and Spice. The problem with it, really, is it is such a deliberate attempt to copy their first hit, Sweets for My Sweet. But it's just not as good. And... Not every member of the band were keen on recording it. In fact, the drummer originally refused to sing on it and he was eventually persuaded to contribute some harmonies. It's a weak song. It's a hacky song. It's too inanely chirpy. I don't believe a word of it. Uh, Yeah, as Nick said, the searchers carried on recording covers of songs that had been originally written for other artists. They never had a top 10 hit with a song they wrote themselves. By the time they actually finally managed to score a self-pen hit, they were just slightly on the slide. So I would imagine if they've not written many of their own songs, the guy who went off to be a baker financially possibly made a wise decision. Well, well, yes. I mean, Bobby Warburton uh, has done quite well for himself, (laughs) hasn't he? Let us not forget that um, if they compose the B-side, they will get royalties for sales of the single, even though they'd only written the tracks on the B-side. I haven't checked this out, but uh, a number of bands did this. Uh, The Suite, famously. None of the Suite's big hits were ever written by The Suite, but they wrote all of their B-sides, so they got the same amount of royalties. So maybe they were doing that. I do think... Despite this somewhat iffy single, I, I do think that the searchers were a cut above the rest of the Mersey Beat pack. They were quite influential in a certain sort of way. Um, their use of harmonies and that jingly jangly guitar sound that Mike Pender has. The birds have said, they've gone on record as saying that was an influence on their sound and their from the birds that went through to the whole of the West Coast America. So th- their influence stretched beyond these shores. In terms of hit songs with the word sugar in the title, there have been eight top 10 hits over the years with um, sugar in the title. And I've sort of tried to rank Sugar and Spice against them. I would say Sugar and Spice is not as good as Sugar Town, Nancy Sinatra, Sugar Sugar by the Arches, Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, although arguably it's lyrically better than Brown Sugar, uh, Sugar Me, Lindsay DePaul, Sugar Baby Love the Rubettes, Sugar We're Going Down, Fallout Boy, not as good as any of those. I'd say it's roughly on a par with Sugar by Maroon 5, and it's definitely better than Sugar Candy Kisses, by Mac and Katie Pursuit. You two are probably too young to remember that one. Um, in terms of uh, hit singles, the word spice in the title, it's not as good as Spice Up Your Life by the Spice Girls, and there are no other contenders. You're being a little bit harsh on Maroon 5 there, but okay. I, I, I also, there was a sharp intake of breath here when you said that, because I knew Maroon 5 was coming up, and I, I like that Maroon 5 song, I think, but that's fine. It's the diversity <laughs> of opinion that will make this podcast great. <laughs> Shall we move on to the 70s? So our hit song from 1973 is My Friend Stan by Slade. 
This was the eighth of 16 top 10 hits that Slade had between 1971 and 1984. That included six number ones. My Friends Down only peaked at number two. It was held off by Eye Level, by the Simon Park Orchestra, and it kind of broke a consecutive run of number ones for Slade. The two singles before it, Come On, Feel The Noise, Squeeze Me, Please Me, both been number one. The single after it, Merry Christmas, Everybody, also got to number one. This was the comparative flop. Trev, what do you think about Slade? What do you think about My Friend Stan? Right, well, I'm going to briefly explain how I'm going through these tunes. I always go through them on a criteria. I'm a DJ, so that's kind of how I do with most songs anyway. Uh, I ask myself if I'm aware of it, uh, if I know it, uh, if I own it, if I like it, if I'd play it, and then whether or not I would discuss it with musos. I wasn't aware of this song. Uh, and then when I heard it, I didn't know it. And obviously, consequently, don't own it. I do think Slade are one of those bands that I should know more of because up until this song, the ones that I know by Slade, I really liked. I didn't particularly like this song. I think it's it's possible, you know, if you know it, I guess it's quite anthemic. You know, it is catchy and it's got a chanty sort of chorus thing. But the problem with anthemic type tunes is the first time you hear it, if you don't go, oh, I'd like to hear this again, I don't want to hear it again. The chanty chorus would be great if I wanted to chant along with it, which I didn't. It was all right, but that's, you know, that's damning with faint praise. I, I, when I put under the like column, half a point, which isn't going to work because you don't half like something. Half a point out of a maximum of how many points? Well, at one point. Oh. Um, so it's either I like it or I don't. So really, if it's not a full point, I don't like it. How binary. Yeah. Would I play it? Like maybe, because I don't think it's a bad song. Whether or not I would play a song is not a very, it's not an exact science anyway, but I'm not that picky. So long as I don't think a song is bad and there are very few songs in the world I actually think are bad. Would I choose to play it? No, I wouldn't. Uh, and would I discuss it with Musos? No, not really, because I don't think there's that much interesting about it. Outside of Christmas, do you ever get any requests for Slade? Uh, yeah, sometimes. And so I and I go to uh, Come On, Feel The Noise, because I think that's a brilliant track. The I used to run um, a rock and heavy metal night, and quite a few of the um like the younger bands uh, would always quite like that Brit i mean british glam you know that you know that's you know alongside like the sweet uh, and bands like that obviously when you're thinking of glam in the motley crew style way it's totally different but uh you know they're, they're a good band of slade got a couple of albums by them oh no i haven't i gave them away to a slade fan because i'm a top bloke uh but you know i i I've always liked what I've heard by them. And as I say, they're a band I feel I should know more by, but then this song didn't back me up on that idea. This isn't making me want to go, do you know what? It's time to pull the trigger and buy their entire back catalogue. I'll just stick with Come On, Feel The Noise. <laughs> Nick, how about you? In the thing with Slade, I mean, if you look at the charts this week, it's number eight in the charts this week. The number one single this week was Daydreamer by David Cassidy. It was number one in the charts, which was number one the day I was born. Uh, it was Daydreamer forward slash the puppy song. Very much a double A side. Yeah, which was number one the very day I was born. So I, I'm too young for Slade. And I think that if you are too young for Slade, you probably don't understand quite how big they were at the time. Because all you have heard, if you're me, as Trev says, is the Christmas one and come on, feel the noise and occasional you know, other ones that get played at weddings and that sort of thing. So to me, I mean, I listen to a lot of Slade today. 
in preparation for this just i thought well i don't really know much of it and it's for me it's not great a lot of it sounds a bit novelty i think this one particularly is a little bit out of the ordinary i don't know whether it that's the reason that it broke their run of number ones and stuff because it is a sort of uh, sit at the joanna in the back room of a pub song rather than screaming guitar so i don't know whether the fact that it was sort of this weird ragtime piano led thing was the reason the production on it to me sounds terrible it sounds like it's been recorded in a in someone's garage it's sort of fuzzy and and hopeless so saying that after I'd heard it once, I did want to hear it again. And by the time I'd heard it a few times, I was like, it was all right, this. It's it's a weirdly mid-paced song. And actually, I've read the lyrics several times and I still don't really know what it's about. It gets a bit weirdly sexual at one point, I think, about his friend Pete or his friend Dave or Steve or Bob or Frank or whoever it is in the middle. I think it's a very weird song. But I mean, when it came out, I mean, like you say, Mike, they were at their absolute peak, weren't they? I mean, it was it was either side of two massive number one singles and stuff. And, you know, this time next week in 1973, they'd released the Christmas song, which just became synonymous with Christmas forever, didn't it? So I don't really know what to make of this. I think I like Slade today no more or less than I did before, even though I know a lot more about them. I've just found the... uh potentially risque lyric. I'd never thought about this before. I think it's the verse that goes, my friend Jack's got an ache in his back. Ooh, yeah. The doc said he'd be fine if he'd just take his time. Ooh. Which in itself would be harmless, but except that at the end of the chorus that follows that verse, someone shouts out, kinky. Yeah, which I just found really weird. Were you you a Slade fan? Oh, God. Right. I was 11 when this was a hit. Slade were my official favourite band. They had taken over that coveted mantle from the suite earlier in the year, and they would hold that position until I first heard Queen in the spring of 1974. I loved Slade. The second album I ever bought was a Slade album. It was the greatest hits collection that had come out just ahead of the release of this single. And although I didn't buy My Friend Stan on 7-inch, I did ultimately own it because I bought its parent album, Old, New, Borrowed and Blue, which came out about three months after this. Yeah, definitely a conscious shift in style after Come On, Feel The Noise and Squeeze Me, Please Me. And I think it was a sensible shift because Squeeze Me, Please Me in particular, that is taking the daft stomp along glam anthem about as far as it could logically go they really couldn't do another one so they had a go at doing something else to underline this there's another interesting thing about the title of this song before now all of their hit singles apart from the very first one were deliberately misspelled from cause i love you all the way through to squeeze me please me this is the first one in two years not to be misspelled, but they've sort of paid a nod to it because on the uh, label of the record, they've reversed the N's in friend and Stan. So it's just a little bit wrong, but no more than that. So it's it's just a gently easing their fans away from that particular concept. It starts relatively sedately, and I 
don't recall any other Slade hits before now that you even used a piano, let alone having the piano as the lead instrument to start with. But then it goes into double time. And I'd say it was a super fast song after that. You don't get any guitar at all until the second verse and then a bit more in the bridge. So again, very different for them. I can't make out to tell the lyrics. It never bothered me then. It doesn't bother me now. Um, in terms of other hit records that mention the word Stan, as anyone contender, and obviously it's not as good as the Eminem song. I was just thinking, what a wonderful, bizarre, somewhere in the universe, there's a parallel universe where the Eminem record, Stan, doesn't sample Dido and it samples this and it would be a completely different record and that'll be the only difference in the universe you went there you could live your entire life and then someone would say ah oh, I'm just going to play Eminem Stan and something that with this backing had come on like wow can you explain why at 11 you loved Slade what was it about Slade at 11 that was so amazing I really enjoyed all their hits I think they'd had about well this was their 8th top 10 hit and I think all their records were going top 10 so the first one I remember was Get Down, Get With It, summer of 1971. It's my first recorded example of gender confusion because they were performing on top of the pops and Dave Hill on lead guitar was stomping around and I genuinely thought he was a woman and it confused me when I realised that Dave Hill was actually a man. You know, people think of people like Mark Bolan and David Bowie sort of pushing the boundaries of gender in glam rock, but Slade, oh yeah, just as much. Then they had another one with Cos I Loved You, which I absolutely adored at the age of nine. And I just stuck with them. I just liked everything they did. If you're nine, 10, 11 years old, you like simple, cheerful, cheery, catchy, stomp along stuff like that. And they wore colourful costumes. Dave Hill had outrageous costumes and a, a guitar with the word super yob embossed on it. Nod, Noddy Holder had a top hat with circles of silver paper stuck to it. What's not to like for a boy of my age? But I was also aware there was a Slade beyond the Stomp Along anthems. There was a more reflective side of Slade. Uh, to pad out this Greatest Hits album, because it had only been two years since they started having hits, they'd added some earlier singles and some album tracks. And some of them were a bit more reflective, a bit more thoughtful, a bit more soulful. I was aware of that side. And I think that's one of the reasons I like my friend Stan so much. They were giving just a little hint to the listeners that there was more to them than just the anthemic stuff. I hope I've explained it. They are quite easy to like. I can see why you would, because, you know, it is that, it's as you say, stompy, chanty. I've written down here Slade Mark, and then I've written Trademark in brackets in case anybody didn't get what I was going for there. But yeah, that sort of style. Is it right? Is it me? Are they a bit like, are the offspring a bit like that? You know what I mean? The offspring were, you know, punk obviously but very pop punk but not in a nasal blink 182 kind of way and it was all chanty choruses mm. different style but as you're looking at me like no <laughs> i don't know where you're going with this well it's a new thought and um well i just think i need to take away and consider well um, you know i'm sure we'll get to the offspring it might it might take us 15 years to get there uh, <laughs> doing this podcast uh, and when it does We'll be able to go, do you remember back 27 years ago, you mentioned Slade and the Offspring. I've decided you are an idiot. <laughs> the only Slade song I've ever bought is 1991's Radio Wall of Sound. Their last hit, their very final hit, not top 10. Good song. It was nice to see them get a second wind in the 80s. They had about three years where they just couldn't get arrested. 
And then they accidentally got a slot. I think it was at the Reading Festival, or maybe it was Carson Donington Monsters of Rock. It was one or the other. Um, another group had dropped out and they were persuaded to take the stage. They thought it was going to be their very final show, like a farewell show. And it went amazingly well. All the back catalogue started selling. They started recording new material and they had a second wind, which pleased me greatly. Let's move on to... This is the Rocksteady crew with open brackets, hey you, close brackets, the Rocksteady crew. It was the only top 40 hit for this breakdancing troupe. Uh, It peaked at number six. Interestingly, it was co-written and co-produced by Stephen Haig. Now, he's an American producer who subsequently worked almost entirely with British bands. He worked with the like of Pet Shop Boys, New Order, OMD, The Communards, Erasure, Holly Johnson and Nick Climby Fisher. He produced Love Changes Everything for Climby Fisher, which what you once told me was the greatest single ever made. I think we were always going to try and squeeze in a Climby Fisher reference to every podcast. I've written this down here that he produced Climby Fisher's Love Changes Everything. So, yes. Go on there, Nick. Obviously, it's the great Stephen Haig. What's not to like? Well, exactly. So being at a school disco in the mid 80s, there was always some somebody who fancied themselves as a breakdancer. I don't know whether Trev had the same thing. There was always one who would be on his back and flip it about and all this sort of stuff. And essentially, we have the Rocksteady crew to thank for this mid-80s school disco embarrassment, don't we? Because the music was a sort of just an excuse for them to do the breakdancing stuff, really. I mean, they only had the one hit didn't they, and stuff. I know it's Stephen Haig, and uh, that is every reason to like it, if you like Pet Shop Boys New Order or anything like that. I actually do think it's a really good, chirpy, early 80s pop record. I don't think there's anything special here. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's a work of genius or what have you. But if you want a upbeat, play it at a 1983 disco, fill the dance floor pop record, I actually think it does a pretty fantastic job of that. I think it's catchy and memorable and I actually really like it. I do have a small quiz. Do you want, do you want a little quiz? Oh, yes, please. Always. Who who is your favourite chart crew? Would you like the shortlist? Go on. So the shortlist is the Crew Cuts, who had a hit with Earth Angel in 1954. Uh, you've got the Rocksteady crew. Uh, you've got Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew. Six minutes, Dougie Fresh, you're on. You have the Cookie crew. I got, got to keep on. Got to keep on. Exactly. You have the So Solid crew. 21 seconds. 21 seconds to go. You have Cabin crew, who did a terrible dance version of Boy Meets Girl waiting for a star to fall in about 2004, I think. You've got the Bad Boy Chiller crew, or you've got, I think my choice here, is the Cutting crew. I noticed you were saving them till last, <laughs> Nick. Uh, no Motley Crew. No hits for Motley Crew. Oh, it's spelt wrong. Has it got to be spelt crew? It's got to be spelt crew. Not crew. Not crew. All right. Two live crew probably wouldn't chat, would they? They were pretty sweary. They mouths like sailors, those guys. I've got a clear favourite. No contest. The Cookie Crew, uh, 100%. Wow. Quite an influential duo in their own way. They recorded the first ever hip house track, uh, Rock to House, with the Beatmasters. And they had the first single ever to be released with that Lynn Collins woo, yeah, breakbeat. One other (laughs) thing that made the Cookie Crew pioneering, they had the first ever remix to be called a drum and bass remix. It wasn't drum and bass as we know it now, but it was the first usage of the term. So quietly pioneering, and females in particular, is just 
all time. I've given you time to make your mind up here, Trev. I guess you could draw a line from Hey You, The Rocksteady Crew to Cookie Crew as well, you know, musically, you know, that sort of arc. I, uh, is it my turn to tell you what I think about this uh, Mm. before I start? Because once I start, you won't be able to stop me. Um, Was I aware of this? Now, I really was aware of this. I was so aware of this. Do I own it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do I know this song? Turns out, no, I don't. I was, oh, yeah. Hey, you, the Rocksteady crew, get on down and boogaloo. What an absolute tune that is, which is what my dad used to sing to me when we used to drive to swimming, obviously, around the time that this came out. It's a song I've got on numerous compilations, but I've obviously never actually listened to. Because those aren't the lyrics. They don't say get on down and boogaloo. And it sounds nothing like I thought it did. And now I don't know what I thought it sounded like. I think I was in the world of sort of um, a midpoint between Cameo and uh, Europe uh, for some reason. So I was like, like a, bit, a bit cheesy 80s rock with early electro type stuff going on. And obviously it's, it's this break dancing thing. So then I move on to whether or not I like it. And I kind of think if I didn't have the really high expectations of how much of a tune I really thought this was, I probably would like this, but I kind of consequently don't because I'm like, oh, it doesn't go like this. This bizarre land that I've created for myself of, well, that song, that doesn't go like this at all. I don't know what it's meant to go like, but not like this. I think some of these tracks, you know, it's quite a maybe pioneering sound is too much to say, but they were certainly moving things forward. And I think quite a lot of these tunes from that time, they're a bit too busy. They've got a bit too much going on. I liked it more once I watched the video and then, you know, got that it was sort of the breakdancing thing, you know, trying to characterize a movement, but it's, you know, it's quite cheesy really uh you know i've got it on a school disco compilation which is just non-stop cheese you know maybe alongside you know like um how we call it acid people who are into acid house really go no 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 we, we don't call it acid but i don't know you know maybe the breakdancing scene was big on this or was this the entrance set you free of breakdancing I, I just don't know. I, I can't believe breakdancers were really actually dancing to this. If electro funk was the new punk, this would be uh, Plastic Bertrand, so I plan pour moi. I love that Trev is disappointed with it because it's not what he thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so looking forward to listening to this. I was like, I can't wait to hear that tune that I love. And it turns out what I love was my dad singing to me in a car. And then, because there is then that, that you go, oh, well, that's just a lovely, happy memory, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my dad's introduced me to so much music uh, over the years. And most of it, I've actually taken the time to go and then listen to. And it's formed the, you know, the background of my musical taste. Maybe I'd have got into dance music sooner if I'd have taken the time to actually listen to this track that he was singing to me. But I listened to all the uh, Meatloaf and Queen and things like that. And yes, particularly uh, that he played to me. So it took me until I was probably 15, 16 before I got into dance music, which is uh, a couple of years after this. Um, so, so yeah, uh, there we go. It's, it's not bad. It could do with try to do a little bit less. I think, you know, it's, it's a bit busy. Uh, some of the classics from that time, I mean, like things like Cameo Word Up, are a lot more musically sparse than this. There's a lot going on. Oh, I think electro generally, electro funk at the time was generally a lot sparser than this. If you think of um, Africa Bambata, Planet Rock, Grandmaster Flash, The Message, there's a lot of space, they're quite minimal productions. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what I mean why it sounds a bit cheesy that they're just chucking a bit much at it you know let's make a pop song rather than doing what they're actually good at because all the component elements are 
are right enough, aren't they? And it's quite a good chorus. That, that, that's what I need to do. I need to just go and use that chorus. Hey, you, the Rocksteady crew. That's a, it's a good chorus that I like that. I think you could play it out to an audience of a certain age and <laughs> middle-aged attempts to, what's it, body pop and lock and all those things that I never understood. You, until now, you have never, ever, ever, when I've spoken to you, sounded your age. But then <laughs> when you were saying body pop, you sounded like a digital watch, an <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I really liked this at the time. I, I bought it on 12 inch. It wasn't just number eight in the UK singles charts in this week. It was also number eight in the only chart that really counted in 1983, Mike Atkinson's personal chart, which I compiled every week and broadcast to an audience of just me. Oh, come on, right. Oh, hang on, hang on. Come on, right. At, at 10. All right. Do you want my top 10? Yeah, yeah. At, te- at 10. Okay, right. Here we go. For the first time ever, Mike Atkinson's personal chart from the 27th of October, 1983. So it was still in place on this day. Moving up, eight places to number 10, David Bowie with Modern Love. Down four places from five to number nine, a former number one, Culture Club with Karma Chameleon. Hey, you, the Rocksteady crew, is another uh, faller this week, going down four places to number eight. It's a big drop for last week's number one. Pop Goes My Love from Freeze is this week's number seven. And it's another four for New Order's Confusion, down four places to number six. Divine with Love Reaction is this week's number five, down from three last week. Now we've got two new entries straight in at number four. In the rest of the world, this was an album track. In my world, it was a smash hit single. It's Wham! with Nothing Looks the Same in the Light a tune with great personal relevance to me. At that point, I won't tell you anymore. And our highest new entry, crashing into the charts at number three from the soundtrack of the hit film Flashdance, it's Michael Sampello with Maniac. Maniac. <laughs> number two this week, it was, it was a former number one all the way back in spring 1983. It is now rocketing back up the charts. Number 20 last week. Number two this week. It's So Many Men, So Little Time by Michael Brown. This means that we have a new number one this week. It's up 12 places from 13 last week. Our new number one, The Safety Dance from Men Without Hats. Where where is Uptown Girl in that list, please? Because Uptown Girl was actual number one this week, I believe. Oh, it's far too cool for Uptown Girl. Oh, right, okay. Uh, Billy Joel is no Michael Sambello. That's where I used to make my own charts. uh, And I I don't think I've still got my charts. I've got all my diaries that I'll never look at again because they'll just be total cringe. But yeah, I used to make my own charts. I'd sit and listen to, I think it was Bruno Brooks uh, was my main chart presenter. But I know that I've gone back and tried to find out who the chart presenters I was when I was peak listening to the charts and i've been disappointed by the fact that again like hey you the rock study crew it wasn't what how i remembered it but yeah i used to do that did, did you used to do it nick did you make your own charts you wait till the late 1980s where i still have a book that me and several friends marked all the songs out of 100 and then we averaged them and ordered them so when we get to the late 80s, I can share all of that. Yeah. Fabulous. I was actually living in West Berlin when this was a hit. Um, I studied German at university and we had to spend a year in Germany and I elected to go to West Berlin. Hey You, the Rock City crew was a massive hit all the way throughout Europe. It was massive in West Germany. It was top 10 hit. 
And break, the whole break dancing B-Boys electric boogaloo thing was very big news in West Germany. This was really the next big pop crossover electro-funk record after Freeze with IOU. And also Herbie Hancock's Rocket had been massive in the summer of 83. I was mad for electro-funk. Um, right from the day that I bought Planet Rock and Grandmaster Flash The Message, Rocker's Revenge, Walking on Sunshine, on the same day. It was this, for me, it was this massive paradigm shift. It's everything I wanted. Uh, it was innovative. It was futuristic. It was electronic. It was of now. And I think a lot of it has worn really well. Planet Rock is an all-time classic. Yeah, this not so much. It's obviously a commercial cash-in. Uh, none of the hip-hop uh, producers whose names I was used to seeing on the labels were involved with this at all. I didn't know who Stephen Haig was at the time, but it's just so gloriously catchy. And I love the way they keep blurting out the word digital every now and again, just because it sounds modern and trendy. Digital was a thing. It was gradually taking over from analog recording at the time. But the first ever digitally recorded album in 1979 was actually by Ry Cooder. The first digitally recorded album to hit the US charts was by Christopher Cross. These are not the OGs of hip hop. But hey, I was aware that this was aimed at an audience that was younger than me. And I was only 21. I had a chance to see the Rocksteady crew live. They came over to West Berlin the following spring. They were going to do an open air concert in a park. And I kind of wanted to go, but I ducked out of it. I thought, well, I'm just going to be surrounded by 16-year-olds and it's going to make me feel old and, and, and stupid and out of place. So I didn't go. I got over that sort of thing very quickly in later life. So from the Roxy Crew, we move on to our song from... The 90s. This is Mariah Carey with Hero. Hero was the fourth of 24 top 10 hits that Mariah Carey had between 1990 and 2008, including three number ones. It peaked at number seven. On the B-side was a dance remix of her previous hit, Dream Lover. Now, Hero was originally co-written by Mariah Carey and her regular collaborator, Walter Afanasyev. Uh, it was written for Gloria Estefan to use as a movie theme. But when Mariah Carey's producer heard the song, he said, you cannot give this away. This is a potential smash hit. You need to record it yourself. Mariah wasn't so sure. She thought it was a bit on the schmaltzy side. But she changed a few of the lyrics um, to kind of match her own personal circumstances before recording her own version. It was still not one of her favourite tunes, but the response from her fans was so overwhelming. She got these letters saying it's helped me through a difficult time, it's saved my life, that she eventually came to terms with it. It's now one of her big signature songs. Whenever she performs live, Hero is either the last track of the main set or it's in the encore. Shrev, your thoughts on Mariah Carey's hero? Well, first of all, thanks for the spoiler on uh, Mariah Carey concerts there. Now, I won't be waiting all the way through going, oh, God, I hope she does hero because you just ruined it for me. Are you going to see Mariah Carey? I've never seen Mariah Carey. Let's discuss this song and you'll find out why I've never seen Mariah Carey. So uh, was I aware of this? I was not aware of this. I just didn't think I'd heard this ever before. Then as soon as I started listening to it, I was like, Yes, I do, in fact, know this tune. I, di I didn't own it. As I was writing down my notes, it started off, I just don't like this type of thing. Uh, because I just don't like this type of thing. Uh, it's the kind of thing that 
rules out X Factor for me and shows like that. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, X Factor is just exploiting hope and destroying people's dreams live on TV. It's the fact that they do a lot of songs like this that mainly rules it out to me. Um, and in fact, until recently, I thought Eurovision uh, was songs like this until I actually started watching Eurovision and discovered that I was missing out on quality entertainment. And then sort of about two minutes into this song, I started to mellow a little bit. But when by the end of the song, whilst I still do not like this kind of song, I like this song. It is schmaltzy. I can't believe that the original version of this was even more schmaltzy. I don't know how that would be possible, but it, yeah, it's, um, it's got an uplifting message. It's, you know, nice. Uh, she's got a great voice. I do think like most divas of her style, if you like, she, she overperforms, could definitely live with her reigning that in. But she's done all right, though, do you know what I mean? So uh, who am I to say? The live version of the video, I couldn't actually find a proper promo video for this, apart from a live version. And I, I ended up buying the track because I do like it. And I think in the world of crazy schmaltzy ballads, I could, definitely see me playing this i could play this early doors sometimes it's it's nice enough tune but the video the live video whenever she does like a particularly impressive note the audience clap and that's awful like that kept me from liking it for quite a while because they, they keep clapping every 30 seconds when she does some singing and that's what you're there to see her do clap at the end of the song you know and don't get me wrong i'm not one of those you know i'm not a classical music buff who goes you don't clap for 27 minutes until the entire thing's finished kind of clap when you're light but not like to that extent if has anyone seen the video do you know what I'm well talking? it's like gymnastics isn't it when an, an audience will clap when the gymnast does a particularly tricky turn or spin or whatever it's it's turning singing into sport because mariah's mariah's style is entirely that it means that they're just kind of clapping every 15 seconds, which it just detracted from it. But again, this won me over, this song. Of the tracks on this list, this was the one that I was kind of going, ah, oh, this this won't do it for me at all. Uh, and by the end of it, yeah. Do I like it? Yes. Would I play it? Yes. Would I discuss this with musos? Well, I kind of, I, I guess I would, because sometimes music needs to surprise you. The fact that everything about this song is what I don't like, and yet I still like it. I think it's worthy of discussion on its own. I understand the point about discussing it with musos because I think most DJs need some power ballads in their digital crates. And I could imagine a bunch of DJs sitting around saying, well, which of the big power ballads work for you? And it may come up. Nick, what do you think of Hero? Well, as soon as I saw that we were talking about this song, I mean, of course, you know it straight away. You're like, oh, all right, it's Mariah Carey, Hero and stuff. I think what surprised me about it was that I assumed... It was an absolutely monster hit. And it, like you say, it peaked at number seven. It was, wasn't really, I mean, it might have been in America and stuff, but it wasn't really a monster hit here. And I think that the reason I know it, going back to what Trev was saying before, is because of the X Factor version. Mm. So 2008 X Factor, they recorded a charity version, if you like, for Help for Heroes. It raised over a million quid. I think it sold 313,000 copies in its first week of release or something. It was absolutely massive mm. in 2008. It was the JLS, Diana Vickers, Alexandra Burke cohort of the X Factor that did it. I mean, it turns out it was the 19th biggest selling record of the 2000s. Wow. I mean, it was absolutely massive. Um, and I think that's probably where I know it from. That version is 
broadly terrible because it's done like a karaoke with you know someone different doing every line and stuff so it's not the best in my opinion well it wasn't bought to be heard was it it was bought as a charitable gesture exactly i think she's got a great voice i think it's fine it's got that sort of early 90s production hasn't it it's it's quite you know of its time i would say co-written by as you say walter uh, uh, i can't remember you've pronounced his name i've had i think uh, co-wrote uh, the James Bond film Licence to Kill, Fact Fans. And he produced uh, My Heart Will Go On for Celine Dion as well. He did. What I like about Mariah Carey is I do like I do like one of those celebrities that's gone so far that they are just utterly batshit. So I'm not a Mariah Carey fan, but I do like how absolutely potty she has become over the years. I think there's a lot to be said for that in music. I think we need more of that. And I think she's got a great voice. But I, I couldn't say one way or the other whether I, I don't. If I never heard it again, I don't think I would be upset. I had a dream about Mariah Carey recently. I often dream about being mates with celebrities, which is just tragic. But that's just the way my subconscious works. And it's a dream that stuck with me. It was about three weeks ago. I do some amateur dramatics in my spare time. And in this dream, uh, I was co-starring in our little neighbourhood community theatre with Mariah Carey in the latest production of our dramatic troupe. And two things. A, she looked really nothing like Mariah Carey at all. B, she was absolutely lovely. She was warm and kind and generous and funny and everybody loved her. And then we were backstage and it had been the final night of the show. We'd taken our bows and I realised I'm never going to see Mariah Carey again. And we'd really bonded. I felt she'd become a friend. And I I realised she was going to go back to her life, her Hollywood lifestyle. I was going to go back to my... North Yorkshire small town life. Our paths would never cross. And I thought, I've never referenced the fact that Mariah Carey is famous before. I've made a point of not doing, but I'm sort of, I need to say something now. And I said, Mariah, you know, you're absolutely nothing like I thought you'd be. And she gave her this look and she said, oh, Mike, you didn't really think I would be, did you? They just make this stuff up. That's not me. It has nothing to do with me. And then we exchanged lingering farewell looks and I, I woke up and it was all a dream. I hope you don't review the record now. I hope that's it. Is that just the review? <laughs> Instead of talking about the record, I would like to give you uh, 17 or 18 minutes about a dream I had about Mariah Carey. God. I find it interesting that she wasn't that fond of the song, even though she co-wrote it. But when she recorded it, she was not fond of it. And she thought... But it we're was out, just to be clear, we're out of the dream now, aren't we? We are this out is of the dream. Real life, well, that's the cold, hard reality of actual Mariah Carey. And in the dream, she didn't like the song. It's not on the record. No, I never referenced her fame. I, I never talked about her, but we were just concentrating on our production. It would have been a distraction. But the, the question I have really, and this is the problem I have with Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, and singers of that ilk. I never know, for all the vocal gymnastics, I never know how much they mean what they're singing, whether there is actual genuine emotion and feeling in it, or is it just a performance? Is it just gymnastics? And I loathed Celine Dion for many years for precisely that reason. And in latter years came to realise that actually there was a huge amount of emotion and passion in what she did. And I just couldn't read it. And I still wondered the same about Mariah Carey's performance in Hero, because she gives the impression that she means it, but 
knowing she wasn't that keen on really does make me wonder. I do have problems with her particular vocal style and the way it influenced so many singers of lesser ability. I think the technical term is melisma. So rather than singing the notes as they were originally written, you twiddle around and do the sort of half notes and trills. I wish that she hadn't done that because of all the other records that followed in its wake. I don't want to be too harsh on the hero because it is a song that means a great deal to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world. It has helped people through dark times. And who am I to be all cynical and tread all over it? But it just doesn't mean anything to me. However, I did buy it. I bought it on 12 inch. And the reason I bought it on 12 inch, because the B side is the David Morales death mix of Dream Lover, which is one of the great club anthems of that period of the 1990s, a uh, track which I still play out to this day. But you know what? I don't think I ever flipped it over and played Hero, not even once. Can you get from Mariah Carey to Alistair Darling in one move? <laughs> Do they both like kittens? No. So Alistair Darling waived the VAT on the sale of the X Factors version of Hero in order to that it sold more and made more money for charity because he was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. Oh, didn't that happen with Band-Aid? Do they know it's Christmas originally as well? I think it was there was legal precedent. Was Alistair Darling in your dream? No, I don't really dream about politicians. Sorry, mainly pop stars. Often pop stars I don't really care about. I've been Bono from U2's best mate on numerous occasions. U2 mean nothing to me. So there you go. Let's move on to... The Naughties! Our Naughties track is State of Mind by Holly Valance. I did have, actually have to check that it's pronounced Holly Valance and not Holly Valance or Holly Valance or anything like that. Um, like Kylie and Jason before her, Holly Valance originally found fame on Neighbours before launching a musical career, although in her case, the musical career was somewhat short-lived. Uh, her biggest hit was the first hit, Kiss Kiss, got to number one in 2002. This one, State of Mind, was her fourth and last top 20 hit. It entered at this position, number eight, and dropped like a stone thereafter and was fairly swiftly out of the top 40. Uh, it was the first hit in nearly a year, or well, the first release in nearly a year, and it was the only single from her second album of the same name. The reason there were no more singles from her second album is because the album only made number 60 for a single week in the album charts, whereas its predecessor had been a top 10 record. So basically, it was game over, music-wise, for Holly Valance after that. She went back to acting, did some movies. She reached the semi-finals of Strictly in 2011, and the year after, she married the billionaire property developer Nick Candy. So, well done, Holly. Whose turn is it to go first? Uh, Nick, state of mind, Holly Valance. So, uh, she did turn up in the last episode of Neighbours, very briefly, I should say, uh, when it was on the other week, in passing. So, in my commitment to this role... Mike, I listened to the album State of Mind yesterday. You say it got to number 60 for a week. Yeah. It's not the best. It's a lot of songs that sound a lot like State of Mind. I don't know whether she just had decided to fuse this kind of heavy electronica. A lot of it sounds like very, very, very sub Kylie 
of the era whereas Kylie was doing excellent things like slow and uh, that sort of thing this just sounds terrible I mean she had a big hit with a song that was I loathe to call it a novelty hit I mean it was a cover of a Turkish song Kiss Kiss wasn't it mm. uh, made for an English audience and stuff so it did have uh, you know that kind of Middle Eastern sound to it stuff so it was unusual whereas State of Mind and her kind of other hits, if you like, are more straight down the line, early 2000s pop. I mean, her voice is fine. Kiss Kiss is fine. This is one of the most forgettable. I mean, I must have heard it a dozen times in the last week, and I still could not tell you how it went. Now I couldn't sing it to you now, if you ask me. It is in one ear and out the other, utterly disposable, vanilla 2000s pop is probably the nicest thing I can say about it. Trev, are you thinking along similar lines? A little. Uh, so I wasn't aware of this. Uh, and then as soon as I started listening to it, I realised that I actually did know it. I didn't own it. And halfway through, I started toying with the idea of buying it because I do kind of like it. There's lots of music like that. I like the, I call it kitchen disco. Um, you know, it's the type of stuff that now is getting a lot more plays on uh, radio too. Sophie Ellis Bexter has a radio show called Called kitchen disco and it is you know it's the Kylie Minogue's that type of thing then I started watching the video because she's a, a very easy person to watch is Holly I had a lot of time for Holly when she was on TV and in a brief pop career she's wearing a Ramones t-shirt which inevitably is just you know it, the summation of all those people wearing Ramones t-shirts who you want to go up and go cool what's your favorite Ramones track that sums it up you know she's there the video is it's like in a garage and there's a full-on like a full-on rock band playing this it, it has the guy riffing and like the guitars are so low in the mix it doesn't sound like a note of it's been actually played by a guitarist at all she's sliding all over the floor it's you know it's, it's meant to look like a sort of diy punk uh, rock gig uh, and it obviously actually just looks like a bunch of models pretending to be at a DIY pop gig I quite like this kind of music I quite like the song but there are loads of other songs in that sort of bracket that I prefer for, for me for Holly Valance it, it is Kiss Kiss or nothing because that was that was a different type of song you know I guess now you could call Kiss Kiss a cultural appropriation if you like but you know that tune was uh, good the um it wasn't just a straight sort of four four electro pop thing it was you know there's something much more interesting to that this is a pleasant video to watch as a straight guy but the only reason to come to the last of my criteria the only reason i would bring this up uh, with musos is to laugh at the video because it's so it's just ridiculous that it's this punk rock gig with studded belts and guitarists sliding around and absolutely thrashing out this synth pop track it's just really stupid <laughs> i watched the video as well um i had planned not to watch any videos for this series at all because some of the earlier songs don't have videos some of the later songs do and i find the video often messes with my head sometimes it can make a song better than it really is for me more often than not it often makes a song worse than it actually is I don't like being given visuals to go with a piece of music. I would rather create visuals in my own head. But I did watch this video. I think the concept of the video is that basically it's a rich girl slumming it. So she turns up outside this grungy club um, in a nice car 
And then she goes out in a Ramones T-shirt and she joins the band on stage. She's writhing around and we're all crazy. And there are people copping off in corners. At the end of that, she comes out of the club. She gets back in a nice car. She changes into a nice designer frock and nice expensive heels. And she goes back to this rich person's pad full of very glossy, wealthy looking people uh, somewhere that she clearly belonged. And then she goes and flops on the bed in some kind of almost post-coital state of ecstasy, kind of grinning that she had this little moment of going and being real and grungy and DIY. But she makes it clear that she's a rich girl slumming it. And, you know, she did marry a billionaire property developer. So, um, you know, it's, it's all of a piece with who she is. So I kind of forgave it for that, if you like. I did buy State of Mind at the time. However, I completely forgot that I'd bought it. I bought it and I sold it. I had to check uh, my little spreadsheet of sales to find out that, oh God, I actually did own it. I sold it for 22p, or have you know. And listening to it again uh, in preparation for this podcast, I've absolutely no memory of it at all. I'm, I'm a bit mystified I ever bought it, except for the fact that I really, really, really like this track. I like the raunchier sound that she's adopted. It's much more my sort of thing than her earlier three hits. I particularly love that absolutely walloping 80s high-energy bass line. It's a bass line that I've always referred to as ong-dinger-rong-dinger, if you know what I mean. Blue Monday, New Order, ong-dinger-rong-dinger. Absolute sucker for that. I like all the stops and starts. Maybe it's a bit too tricksy. I mean, it wouldn't really work on a dance floor because it stops and starts all over again. But the great thing about it stopping is it kicks back in with the ong-dinger-rong-dingers and I'm bouncing up and down all over again. Someone's having a lot of fun with that filter knob in the midsection. Now that I've become a digital DJ in recent months, that effect is completely ruined for me because it's just one knob. And you turn it one way and everything goes really muffled. And you turn it the other way and everything goes really trebly. And all they've done in the middle of this track is they've turned the filter knob down and then they've turned it all the way back up again, which is even I can do that. And by this stage, like in the noughties, it was, or technology was already there it was just one knob by then uh, you know it would have taken an entire studio to do that in the 80s but yeah by this stage this was one knob on your mixer norman cook says um, when he's giving advice to up-and-coming djs he says every time you turn the filter knob you need to pull a face like a total it's like you're doing this amazingly technical thing and you're taking it as far as it can oh my god with every it's actually because the torque on those knobs is really heavy. Uh, when you're t- so inside, you're actually moving a mill wheel, um, you know, millstone, and you're grinding ah. flour, and you're just doing it with a very tiny knob. That's why it's all like. There you go. Right. State of Mind is an example of the sort of um, early to mid two thousand spot that I really loved at this time. I've got a blog going. It had got a good number of readers, and I was reading a lot of other blogs. I was reading a lot of music blogs. And there was a new term in the air amongst the members of the music bloggosphere. And that term was poptimism. Um, Poptimism was saying we should be taking pop music every bit as seriously as all these serious rock critics have always taken rock music. It deserves as much examination as rock music. And there were a lot of very intelligently crafted and insightful blog posts going around analysing Rachel Stevens' Sweet Dreams, My LAX, or Khaleesi's Milkshake or whatever, so in, in, in granular detail. And I was, I was very on board with all of that. 2003 was the year that Girls Aloud started having hits. There was Rachel Stevens. Scissor Sisters were on the point of becoming massive. 
Gold Frap had gone electro with their second album. Um, yeah, there was Khalees Milkshake, there was Outcast Kaya. There was a lot of what I thought of as an innovative, clever, conceptual, forward-facing pop music going on. Oh, I'm a Pet Shop Boys fan. I like clever and conceptual pop music. It really works for me. So this is a strong contender when we come to do the votes at the end of the podcast. I should also say it obviously references 1980s pop, and that was such a defining feature of 2000s pop, right from the early days when that that whole Electro Clash club scene was coming along, right through to the end of the decades when you had La Rue, Little Boots, Frank Music. The 80s never went away for the whole of the 2000s, possibly more so than any other revival in any other decade. You never cease to amaze me, Mike. If you like it, you should probably listen to the album. There's a lot of, There's a lot of it. <laughs> I would mention that to my muso mates. If Holly Valance's State of Mind, the criminally underrated sophomore album, turns out to be a hidden gem, yeah, I'll, I'll be back on the music blogs. So I would say with reference to like the 80s, you know, throughout the noughties which I, I absolutely agree with you but um in the 90s certainly a lot of the club sound there was a, a long period where it was all the 70s you know uh, brandon block was basically yeah. just playing entire sets of disco different versions and stuff like that uh, and then in the teens they started referencing the 90s and that's mm. i mean that's still going on at the moment you know most an, or an awful lot of club house music just sounds like 90s house does now so I, I think there's that you know there's that just that offset 20 years at the moment we still seem to be stuck in the teens really but you know in in five years time are we going to start referencing the noughties i think we will um i've got a friend in her early 20s who told me recently she'd been to a 2000s party with her mates she's about 22 that's like what would you do at a 2000s party so, yeah, I think it's on its way. Oh, Holly Valance. Holly Valance. <laughs> uh, e- Eamon and Frankie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the future's bright, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Pop will eat itself, indeed. Let's move on to... Our track from 2013 is Beautiful Life from Union J. Originally a trio called Triple J, the trio competed in the 2012 series of The X Factor. They made it to the judges' houses stage, but they they didn't get a place on the live shows. However, after another group dropped out, they were invited back to take part in the live shows on the condition that another failed contestant was added to their lineup. Their name was therefore changed from Triple J to Union J. Uh, they got on the show. They did pretty well. They reached the semifinals. They finished fourth, just ahead of Rylan, no less. Uh, that was the season that was won by James Arthur. Beautiful Life was the second of just four top ten hits that they had between 2013 and 2014. It peaked at this position, number eight, just like the Hollywood Lands track before it. However, this one, next week it dropped to number 25, the following week, it had left the top 40 altogether. Trev, Union J, Beautiful Life, X Factor. I sense I know what might be coming here. Right, so I, I wasn't aware of this tune. I'm aware of Union J. And unlike a great deal of bands from the talent shows, let's call them, like I actually occasionally get asked for Union J. Not so much recently, but certainly at the time. I didn't own this, and I, I fully went in with preconceptions i'm aware of that my barriers were up Uh, my preconceptions were high and they were 
immediately confirmed a group of unrealistic overly attractive young men uh, who don't look real and there's there's nothing real about this this is the video i'm on at the moment it's it is everything i hate about pop they're awful i've written down their awful shoes because their shoes are awful their eyebrows annoy me They've got rolled up sleeve leather jackets. They're air grabbing. And I've written the second worst swear word about their hair. Like they can take their hair and they can do the second worst swear word there is to it. Their hair makes me want to end life on the planet. It's (laughs) so annoying. It's so perfectly. Oh, look at how we've not done our hair it's really really try hard to look like you're not trying hard and i was fuming watching this video she's going over the top of what's actually quite a nice positive pop song it's there's lyrically it starts off with a bloke you know with a bunch of men telling women what she's doing is wrong uh which is a bit (laughs) weird but after that it's it is positive or it's trying to be positive it is completely unbelievable it's saying you know what this girl is doing wrong and it's exactly what this band is selling this band are there as part of the machine of sitting watch tv we will tell you who's going to be christmas number one we will tell you what you need to buy and you need to get your hair cut like this and all that kind of stuff so again that's another reason that i'm really annoyed by the thing but perhaps one of the main reasons i'm really annoyed of it is still at the end i have to go yeah i like this song it gets a a solid tick of like would i play this i don't own it Uh, if i owned it I would play it at certain times of certain nights. Uh, it wouldn't be very often. The reason that I've not, I don't own it is I've got a lot of really good pop songs that are like this. There's loads of them out there and I, I don't need to fund this machine, which I think by now you've sussed out. I'm not a massive fan of, but I like the song. Uh, I would never ever discuss this with Musos unless I was on a podcast specifically talking about this song. Nick, how about you? Um, I bet Holly Valance spent a lot of time on her hair in her video. That, that's fair enough. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's, it's I still I didn't hate Holly Valance's hair. Funny that. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I'll allow that. That's a good point. What What has essentially happened? I mean, there's been boy bands since time immemorial, right? But what has essentially happened here is that two years earlier, Simon Cowell had lobbed together One Direction as randoms on the X Factor. They turned into they've been massive. And then he's had another go. He's basically just had another go at recreating the magic of that by assembling, as Trev says, a very handsome brigade of young, attractive men to uh, sing uh, harmless, I would say, pop music. Did you know that one of them used to be a jockey? Rode for the Queen. Until the age of 21, I think one of the singers was a jockey. Anyway, the market for this kind of thing was slightly crowded at this point, I think, which was difficult, I think, for someone like Union J to carve a niche. You'd had One Direction for a couple of years by this point. You'd got uh, The Wanted still having big hits in 2012, 2013. You'd got Lawson's debut album came out in 2012, who were doing something very, very similar to this, I would say, in terms of the sound of it. So I think they were in a quite a crowded little market for it i listened to this album earlier this week it's it's fine it's got a kind of um it sounds a little bit like the later incarnation of take that i think it sounds like a sort of slightly updated westlife for the 2010s in some ways i think in terms of the songs and stuff i think it's 
fine. I don't think it's the strongest. I think some of their other singles are stronger than this one. I am convinced, and I tried to corroborate this with my daughter today, that they played at my daughter's school at some point during the early days of their career. They did that thing where they just went around secondary schools. And I'm pretty sure I recall her telling me that they played a school one point which hints going back to Chev says about the machine of it all you know it's quite a naked marketing angle to get for handsome young lads in front of a, a load of teenage kids I suppose it was co-written by the way by the fellow who represented Cyprus at 2010 Eurovision Song Contest mm. there's a fact for you what, what did you think Mike? Well I watched all the seasons of X Factor up until the uh was it 2012 season? This was the first season that I didn't watch. Therefore, I knew absolutely nothing about Union J. I was vaguely aware of James Arthur. I, was, I wasn't even aware of Ryland at the time. So, um, yeah, Union J had been completely off my radar until now. I'm the same as Union. I, I think it's decent. I think it's a nice song, well-crafted, perfectly okay at what it does. I got a whiff of the Barlows about it. I thought of second era, take that songs like Rule the World and Greatest Day. There's something a little bit anthemic about it. There's a bit of a self-empowerment theme, a little bit in the way that Hero had a self-empowerment theme. But there's a nice contrast in the chorus. The chorus is all the self-empowerment stuff, but the verses, you've got these two characters. You've got this girl who sees herself as an underachiever. You've got a boy who has great material wealth. I think the suggestion is that wealth has been handed to him on a plate but doesn't feel fulfilled. And of course, in the video, the girl and the boy get together, obviously. Kind of brokered by Union J standing in the middle of a load of shipping containers with nice hair. I was very struck by the similarity between what appears to be the lead singer of Union J and a certain Mr. Harry Styles. That cannot be entirely coincidental. Looking through the YouTube comments, I sensed there was some pretty major beef from One Direction fans and the rather smaller number of Union J fans. There was a plea in the comments. Can't One Direction fans and Union J fans all just get along? Can't we like both acts? But I don't want to tangle myself in the really choppy waters of One Direction fandom because I'll only get it wrong and then we'll be besieged by angry One Direction fans explaining exactly how we got it wrong. On the other hand, if we wanted to give traction to this podcast, maybe I should be trolling One Direction fans right now, deliberately misrepresenting them. Just imagine the fight in a car park between One Direction fans and Union J fans. That would be brutal. Oh, it'd be a bloodbath. Let's arrange it. <laughs> I think the issue is that Union J's best song is not a patch on a mediocre One Direction one. I think One Direction where did have the songs, whether you like them or not, and I, again, I'm not getting in, involved in a, a, a Union J battle here, but I do think One Direction had the superior... If you think of something like Night Changes or What Makes You Beautiful, they were better records. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I've made it relatively clear I don't like this entire thing, you know, the whole the talent show concept. And I regularly play tracks uh, at party nights by One Direction because, you, you know I mean, they surpass that thing. It's, it is good pop music. Yeah, I don't like where it came from, but a good song is a good song. But I don't think this is a bad song, but it's not good enough for me to go, yes, I will sell my soul uh, for this tune. I'll just play another One Direction song, thanks. I'd assumed this was the only single that we've talked about that didn't exist in physical form. 
Actually, it turns out there was a CD single version of this, but you couldn't buy it in the shops. You could only order it from the official Union J website. So it really was the last gasp of the CD single as any time of format. I went to the Union J website the other day and it redirected me to a Facebook page. So there isn't, even though they've reformed, they supported Christina Aguilera a couple of months ago. So even though they're back in action, they still don't actually have a Union J website. I mean, come on, you'd think a band of that size would at least be on MySpace. Yeah, they kind of vaulted that whole process, really. Shall we move on to our vote before I explain to our listeners how they can do their own voting? What we're asking people to do is not just vote for your favourites. I want people to vote for their first, second and third favourites in order of preference. And also, because everyone likes hating things, their most bad and hated so there's, there's two of them that are a bit meh. You don't need to worry about ranking them at all. I want your first, your second, your third, and your worst. And when we come to do the scorings, you'll get three points for a number one, two points for number two, one point for a number three, minus one point for most bad and hated. Uh, when the voting is complete for this episode, those points will transfer to the decade. And then with each subsequent episode, more points will be added. I mean, it's possible if one decade does really, really badly and it always gets most bad and hated, they could never make it above zero points. But this remains to be seen. Trev, can I have your scores, please? It's difficult, is this? Um, I think first is uh, when I was looking at these tracks, this is not how I thought this would play out. I would have expected Mariah to be my most hated and she's my favourite track. That gobsmacked me. But there is a good song. Not my type of thing at all, but it is a good track. And then second, it's Union J. You know, when when you've got Slade and The Searchers you know, on this, I'm going, well, there's some better known bands. But the Union J track, it's a good song. Just because I don't like the absolute rest of the package. There we go. Uh, and third is uh, Holly Valance. I think it's a week, two and three. You know, the first place is just nailed on. I think that's a great track. Two and three, I'm not particularly confident in them but there we go uh, and hate i am so torn between union j my second favorite song uh, <laughs> because of how much i hate everything about it and my crushing disappointment with the rock steady crew and because the rock steady crew track there's nothing wrong with it it's just not what i thought it was uh, i'm going to go my first track is mariah my second track is union j my third track is hollywood lance and my most hated track is my second favourite track, Union J. Sue me. If only we'd had Trev's dad singing the Rocksteady crew, it yeah. would have cl- cleaned up here, wouldn't if it? If it was my dad driving, a, I think, a Ford Avenger, we were driving around in at the time, uh, on the way to Coppice Valley Swimming Pool in Harrogate, that would have been great. And just the chorus, and the chorus that wasn't even in the chorus, hey, you, the Rocksteady crew, get on down and boogaloo. That's not even what they sing. Better version. Nick, how about your votes? I'm Well, Trevor's thrown me because I didn't realise I could vote for a song in both the positive and the negative. Actually, I kind of feel I need to call the meeting to order because you're quite right, Trev. You cannot vote for a song twice. I was dozing on the job there. I think you're going right. to, aren't you? I don't mean to lead you, but I think you're going to have to give your most hated to Rocksteady crew, aren't you? No, no. In that case, um, I think I'm going to have to give it to Slade, which surprises me. Okay. But there we go. It's Of all of the tracks, it's the one I would least like to hear again. Hate is far too strong a word for it. I don't hate yeah. it. Don't dislike it. But yeah, if I had to pick one that I'd never hear again, it'd be that. 
Sorry, Slade. Performative hate, but hey, guys, we don't really mean it. Nick, how about you? Well, on the basis that I haven't had it ruined by Trev's dad, I'm going to go with the Rocksteady crew, please. The 80s as my favourite. I just I absolutely accept everything that you're saying. I just think it's a great pop record. Second place, I am also going to go for uh, Union J, unexpectedly, but I think it's a perfectly fine record. And then third place, I would say not because I like it third best, but I agree with what Mike said about how important a song it has been to a lot of people. I'm going to go for the Mariah Carey one. I think when you're getting letters from fans saying that, you know, your song saved my life or my brother's life or my sister's life or something, I think, you know, whether I like it or not, there's something to be said for the power of a song like that. Uh, And most hated, I am going, I'm very sorry, but I am going to go for Holly Valance and the 2000s. I just think it's incredibly forgettable. Interesting. I have really been struggling with my top three. I've spent far too much time over the past few days trying to put my top three in order. There are three songs, any of which could be number one. And I've been changing my mind. Even over dinner, I changed my mind. And I've changed my mind again since. But the time has come to commit. So my favourite is Holly Valance. It's the song that I find the most exciting. A lot of those earlier uh, 60s, 70s, 80s songs, they kind of run out of ideas in the first minute and the rest is repetition till the end. But the Holly Valance just carries on doing things all the way through that thrill me. And also it goes on dinner, wrong dinner. And there is no bad song with that bass line. Second place, Rocksteady Crew. And although my 11-year-old has been screaming at me to make Slade number one, I'm only going to give Slade third position. I like it a lot, but I don't quite get the same visceral thrill that I do from the other two. My most bad and hated, uh, I feel rotten saying this now, but I've already made my decision. I'm putting Mariah Carey as my most bad and hated mainly because I felt that it's enormous success. Okay, only number seven in the in the UK, but enormous worldwide success. It took pop in the wrong direction for me. So it may have helped an awful lot of people. And I don't want to diminish that. But from my perspective, it just ushered in all those horrendous, melismatic self-empowerment ballads that made my life a misery for years to come. Sorry, Mariah, you were great in the show. I will always love you. Now then, listeners, you will be wanting to know how to vote yourselves. There are two ways you can do this. Um, I think eventually we'll move the voting to somewhere else. But to begin with, we're going to make it nice and easy and accessible. So you can vote on Twitter or you can vote on Facebook. On Twitter, look for the Which Decade is Tops account. You will find four polls. Read very carefully before voting in them because you cannot undo your vote when it is done. Make sure you are voting for your favourite in the favourite poll, your second favourite in the second favourite poll, and so on. And it's a similar story on the Facebook page. Search Which Decade is Tops Pops on Facebook. There will be polls up there. Theoretically, you could gain the system by voting twice, one on each platform. I, I am taking it on trust that you will not do that. If you want to email us, uh, there's a Gmail account, which decade is pops at gmail.com. I think all that remains for me to do now is thank Nick and Trev very much. And I also need to thank Rory High for composing the music for these, these episodes. Great job, Rory.
Which decade is Tops for Pop? 